episode of the Bowfinger Minute Podcast. Each week, movies by Minute Hosts examine the 1999 Frank Oz-directed comedy Bowfinger. One minute of screen time per episode. I am your host this week, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I was the host of the Bull Durham Minute. I'm the host of Locked On MLB and Sully Baseball Podcast. I'm an Emmy-nominated television producer. I've been a comedian, a special education teacher, a sports writer. I've been on HBO Sports, and I arrested Monk in an episode of Monk. And I did direct my own independent film called I'll Believe You. And I won't believe you if you say you saw it in the theater. My, <laughs> on today's episode, we are covering Minute 42, which begins with Kit Ramsey paranoid in the parking lot hearing something. Trying to keep it together as Betsy the dog is in pursuit and ends with Bowfinger praising Betsy for getting looks of fear. Well, here's someone who doesn't get looks of fear, but looks of happiness. Whenever I see him, he's been my friend for, God, for a quarter of a century, which is impossible because I'm only 29. He's a wonderful comedian, filmmaker, actor, cartoonist, improviser, inventor, uh, probably a couple other things that I haven't even mentioned right now. It's Victor Vernado. Victor Vernado, how you doing, man? Great, thanks. Uh, what an intro! I sound awesome. <laughs> you've been, you've been on, you've been on many a TV show, including you. You've been on Conan as a stand-up. I've been you've on been, many TV a, shows. I've many also TV shows. made terrible TV shows. I've been on good TV mm-hmm. shows and made terrible ones. Uh, yes. And I've been in. That's terrible- an important distinction. I've been in terrible and good movies, and I've yes. made I've made mostly good movies. Yes. Well, as far as like feature length things, I made they're they're all good. I've made some terrible short films. <laughs> Who hasn't? Who hasn't? That's why we I have know. short films. Exactly. You know? but, For your crazy ideas that uh, might not make it, and then don't. but yeah, you know, yeah. Well, um, you and I met. Uh, a little bit before this movie came out, I was thinking about this before. I think I met you and Colton Dunn, who later was on the show uh, Superstore. For those of you who are fans of the sh- of the show Superstore, it's currently on uh, the show The Recruit on Netflix. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And um, very funny guy. And the two of you, I the first time I remember, I may have met you before that, but the, the first time I remembered you was when I was hosting at the Gotham open mic on the on the first 
Gotham Comedy Club when it was on 22nd Street. And the 4.30 in the afternoon open mic that I would, the freak show that I would hosting there of either very good comics trying material out or a lot of people coming up to me saying, I've never done comedy before and I can't wait to try. Uh, I met, I, that's where I first remember meeting you two. And the first time I saw you being really funny on stage then, and you and I became, you, you came here from Minneapolis, you came to New York from Minneapolis, right? True. Yep. Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, and I was, uh, I was doing touring comedy. In fact, I was, I did a shows in Huntsville where I believe you, were you born in Huntsville or do you raised in Huntsville, Alabama? Raised in Huntsville. I was born in Gary, Indiana. Pew, pew, okay. guns. God, you're everywhere. You can't, you can't, because I remember mentioning to you when I was, did a show in both Huntsville and Decatur, Alabama. Decatur is right across the river from Huntsville, for those of you who don't know. Huntsville, they literally have rocket scientists. There's a space camp there. There were really smart audiences there at a great show. Across the river was Decatur, which is where people were yelling anti-Semitic things at me, despite the fact that um, I have an Irish name. But uh, <laughs> I remember you and I became friends then, and it was shortly after that, 1999, this film came out, and End of Days came out with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I was there with my brother, my then sister-in-law and probably Richie Duncan and applauding when in the opening credits, you got great billing in that movie, the opening credit sequence, you're there, Victor Varnado there. Oh, um, yeah. That working, was working. That was all due to my agent at the time. She was very savvy. And not only that though, I did get opening credit, but then the director who hired me got fired before the movie was uh, released or, or even finished shooting. <laughs> So then right. my contract was already set and I was supposed to be in the whole movie, like a lot of the movie. But yeah. when the director who got hired me got fired, they changed the script and my scenes got cut down. So I only appeared in two scenes, but I still got billing in the opening credits because my, my agent had already negotiated it. So that was well, awesome. That's Now, <laughs> wait, so the, you did you work with Peter Hyams? Was he the director yeah, when I did, you were but, there? Yes, but before him was Marcus and the Spell. Do you know who Marcus okay. Spell is? He directed, I know the like, name. He directed the most recent uh, remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And okay. at the time, he was like a hotshot director, and that was supposed to be his first big movie. But mm -hmm. his problem was that apparently he did not like sharing the dailies with Universal because uh, they gave too many notes. And then eventually they were just like, you're fired. And because it, it was his first yeah. film. And then his his... DP was Peter Hyens at the time, who was made oh, really? the DP. He was made the DP to be goalie for the film by the <laughs> by Universal, and then he took over when uh, when uh, Marcus and Spells let go. And Peter Hyams was already an established director with 2010 and um, Outland. And uh, my favorite weird credit: he directed the Billy Crystal, uh, Gregory Hines heist comedy, Running Scared. <laughs> from the uh from the he's he's one of those very strange uh filmographies but you had a scene you were the you were my first friend who ever did a scene where i got to see you explode on camera which, <laughs> you uh, have mini well you know you get to know people over the years I, at least you're if i meet another one you're the first and, and you came up to i was i'm gonna try to remember the actress's name robin tenney 
Tunney. Robin, Robin Tunney. Yes, I remember it was a Robin, and you came up to her in the subway with your your blonde dreadlocks and. Uh, oh my god! And, I gotta and, tell you something about that scene. Okay, so I watched End of Days with the director's commentary on. And then right. so when my scene comes up with the director's commentary, I was like, I wonder what Peter Hines is going to say, because he didn't know me at all. Like, because remember, he didn't hire yeah. me. Right. And he just made up a story. <laughs> he he just he was like, Victor, he's one of the great actors. He's classically trained Shakespearean actor. And I was like, what? That's not <laughs> me. That's not he didn't, like he made up a story like he like he's like even in the small roles like classic chick six and i was like that is untrue <laughs> like a hundred percent so if you listen to the director's commentary he is straight up making it up that's unbelievable and here's the funny thing is you do have a wildly varied resume you have checked a lot of boxes off it's just one of them is not shakespearean trained actor you yeah, know i mean and, you're, and it made me you're, suspicious. Actually, you're actually the opposite you're the opposite you're an improv trained actor is what yeah, you are and it, it made me suspicious of every director's commentary i've ever listened to after that because i'm just like <laughs> are they just making this up because he's because i mean i'd never been in the situation before and he just did right. you know yeah that's unbelievable. That uh, that is hysterical. Wow, I never knew. I didn't know that he was the the pinch hitter director. I uh, just because you know it came out in came out in ninety nine, which is around the time um, Bowfinger came. Did you see Bowfinger in the theater? Absolutely. When it came out. Absolutely. Yeah. Bowfinger was one of those movies where I was so excited about it. One, I'm a big fan of Steve Martin just have always mm -hmm. been a big fan of Steve Martin. I'm a right. big fan of Eddie Murphy in really good roles. Uh, and so, you know, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a big I talked fan about of that. Frank I Oz. talked about that in the previous, I talked about the previous episodes of how when Eddie Murphy is used right, it's brilliant. And when it, when it's not, you want to pull your hair out because it's oh, such yeah. a I'm actually excited talent. about the you people movie. I think that might be a good one. Mm -hmm. The trailer was great. The trailer yeah. looked really, looked, looked really great. But yeah, yeah it's and, like every time you, Every time you think he's totally given up, he'll make a Dolomite or he'll make a Dream Girls or he'll make a You People, which you go like, oh, all right, he's still in there somewhere. But yeah, uh, Dolom the Dolomite movie was really fun. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I thought he was going. I thought he was going to get uh, an Oscar nomination for that. I just thought it was just. I thought that film was terrific. But um, yeah, I saw it in the theater. I remember I this is when I was doing a lot of road shows when I was on the road a lot, like going to be being called a uh I Jew in uh in Decatur, Alabama. Um, I saw it on the road somewhere, like in North Carolina or something, when you have the full day to kill and you go to you go to the movie theater and you just and it may have been one of those days I saw one or two movies, but I was I, I too grew up a huge Steve Martin fan and I just Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy are kind of similar in that they're brilliantly funny and make so many films that don't that aren't worthy of their talents because they're big paychecks. And again, who am I to besmirch from a big paycheck? But you know, you just knew when you saw the trailer and you saw what it was going to be about. Said, okay, they're both trying in this movie. This is they're both they're both booking their bets. And this is there was a lot of just just good solid laughs in this movie. I absolutely agree. It was a good time. And yeah. Frank Oz is great as a director. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, and then you had a uh, uh, you had Frank, and he had worked with um, Steve Martin prior in one of his best films, which is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which was a Frank Oz production. And he also what? directed. Frank, it was a Frank Oz production. He didn't direct it though, did he? he no, he directed Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, didn't he? Frank Oz did. I'm not. Yeah. Wow, I love I, that movie. I no, I love I've been that movie saying so that. Much. Wait a second. I've been saying that. Have I? Did I get it wrong? Wait, hold on. I refuse to believe this. I refuse to live in a world where I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Did he direct it? All right. Do you know what? Know uh, everyone, everyone currently listening to this is screaming into their iPhone. Now, which one of us are they screaming at? Are they it screaming is, is, at? He did direct. He did direct Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I didn't know that. And I okay. love the movies that he directed uh, in general. Yeah. And I didn't know he directed it. And I, and I love that movie without knowing he directed it. Also, I did. Did you see the movie that that was based on Bedtime Story? I have not. No. Uh, there's some shots that are straight up out of Bedtime Story that are just amazing. When I saw because I, I liked the movie so much, I went, went and watched the original, which is Bedtime Story. And then I realized that some of those shots were like perfect shots taken from that movie, which is made like in the like late late 60s and early 70s area. All right. Um, All right. This is this is why you this is why you bring in the Victor Vernados of the world. You get to learn. So tell me the name of the movie again. I'm going to write it down bed, here. Bedtime Story. And you know the moment bedtime. when uh, you know the moment when the uh, like uh, the sailors grab like there's a really fun shot of sailors grabbing somebody and, and pulling them in the van. Do you remember that shot? In, yeah, uh, yeah. 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 That's, a, that's an exact, this is an exact reproduction of the shot in bedtime. Story. So they did that shot like a long time ago and it was so good that they kept it in the new version of the movie, which is amazing. That's great. That's great. I love that the role of Arthur in dirty rotten scoundrels is in McDermott, AKA emperor Palpatine. Um, uh -huh. So you have, you have Yoda directing emperor Palpatine. <laughs> in, a, uh, in a Steve Martin, Michael Caine comedy. So uh, I remember Frank Oz in his cameo in the uh, in an American Werewolf in London. Um, but he, when he he sounded so much like uh, the characters that he does, uh, the Muppet characters that he does, because he was like yelling, and so when he yells, yeah. he sounds like a Muppet. <laughs> He's like, well, here's a good Mister Kessler. <laughs> he was a good luck charm for John Landis, which I guess is a. I guess how much of a good luck charm was he for John Landis? But uh, you know, he has great cameos in in the Blues Brothers, in um Trading Places, in Spies Like Us. Uh there's I think there's one oh, he's in Blues Brothers two thousand, so I guess the good luck uh may have run out there. But uh <laughs> oh I, I I I you know John Landis is welcome on this podcast whenever whenever he wants to be. Um and uh, well, the other uh, one of the reasons I brought you on, you and I talked about this a little bit, is I talked about this in yesterday's episode that the 90s was a period of time where a lot of people thought they were one inexpensive indie film away from being discovered at Sundance and becoming the next Quentin Tarantino or Kevin Smith or Steven Soderbergh, which meant there was no shortage of Bowfingers that you would bump into. Uh, just of people like I'm raising money to shoot this movie. I'm raising, like most of the time it would not amount to anything. And this is coming from the director of I'll believe you. Uh, most of the time it just, you know, you're just scrambling to get anything or anyone. He's like, and you're hearing stories of like 
El Mariachi only cost $9,000 to make, and they released, Columbia Pictures released it, which is not completely true, but they like to create that mythology. Now, do you, you're someone, you're not a bow finger, but you're someone who certainly has that, all right, I'll go make it myself attitude with, you know, with what you've done with your, you know, your, your documentary film, your concert films, your animation, everything you've done. Do you remember a lot of those people like during the nineties who just were like, Hey, we're making an indie film and we're going to shoot oh, it for I, $3. I absolutely do. I absolutely do. But I, I've since then I found out this secret sauce to making an independent film is to recognize your market first and where it's going to go first. Cause most people just mm -hmm. like make the film and hope um, yeah. And I've done that too. And so did you. <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah. Lord knows I did. Lord knows I did. But if you can figure out where you're going with it, then that really helps a lot. And so um, I've had some successes in the past with just stuff that I threw my heart into. For instance, mm -hmm. like I made a short film once I made the short film for like under a hundred dollars. And then I licensed it to Comedy Central for $10,000. I didn't know that that's the way it was going to go, but luckily it was lucky that it went that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've done that, stuff like that before. I did a short with Cronin, Dan Cronin, our mutual friend. It cost me probably $40. I think we, I think we each had an omelet and uh, it was licensed for a couple of thousand dollars by PBS when they showed it on independent lens. Yeah. And so I sort of, I kind of looked at it and go like, that ratio of profitability because when they, they I had to break down the budget. It's like, well, uh, Cronin ordered an omelet and a side. I ordered an omelet and a side, and um, uh, we bought a video. I brought videotape and uh, I put it through my computer. I mean, it was it was nothing. And if only everything was that pro had that ratio of profitability. We'd be well, the rate that ratio of profitability actually exists right now in different forms because right, right now. Right now, luckily, shooting in high quality video can cost you next to nothing. And if you just plan things well, you can make a lot of stuff. Well, actually, I was going to bring this up later, but you're, it, it came up organically. So I should point out that it came up organically. Um, one of the reasons why I think this film is a little bit of a time capsule film in that this story wouldn't, this is a very 90s story that they're telling. Because one of the big obstacles the bowfinger has to go through is getting the equipment getting yeah. access to places and you think about now i'm holding up my 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 iphone right here this is a better piece of equipment than all of the film equipment we had at nyu when i was going to college there you know that was the reason you went to film school was that's where the equipment was if you want to make a film you have to go where the cameras are and the lights are. But now I got a ring light here. I can get a selfie stick. You know, you can shoot this tablet here that I have has a has an HD camera on it that is better than any camera I used in the 1990s. You know, the <laughs> the, the the amount of effort it takes to get the equipment to create something that looks professional is you know, my kids could do it. Their friends do it. As opposed to this film where they had to come up with ways to steal this camera from the studio or steal this dolly from the studio. You know, now, you know, Bowfinger could, when he when he busts out the, the cigar box with a few thousand dollars in it, that might be enough to make a feature film now. You know, you wouldn't have the star in it, but you would, so many of the elements 
of how do I get the equipment? How do I get the film developed? Remember when film developing was a huge thing? And how do I put titles on everything? Now you just just you know put it in, do do Premiere Pro. You're in you're in you're in business. Yeah, you can do you can do a lot, but it, it's it's like one of those things where it's like people are afraid, like for instance, filmmakers used to be afraid when digital started coming along because mm -hmm. and then there was this whole fight like it's not a film unless it was shot on film and you remember that happened and it it is people who <laughs> have exactly i agree <laughs> but for those, for those of you wondering why he's agreeing to i was a signifying the motion of pleasuring myself we're not trying to make, make this get an explicit rating but i was simulating the motion <laughs> of pleasuring myself at the idea of it's not a film unless it's shot on film god i have you ever edited Edit, I didn't mean to you. Have you ever edited like on a flatbed Steenbeck or a Moviola where you have the film rolling, you have to cut it and hang it on the little strips? I have not. I was, I only started editing right. I started editing right when nonlinear editing started at the very beginning to become a thing on the mm -hmm. Amiga video toaster. Like that's oh, where I started. Oh, I remember the video toaster. Absolutely do it. Uh, I learned at, I learned at NYU, I had a six plate flatbed. And I edited on those. And uh, so I've handled film and I've done that. And I want to push every six plate Steenbeck into the Hudson River. I hate them. I hate handling film. <laughs> I, I I have no, every piece of equipment I learned how to use in college. I graduated in 1994. By 1996, every piece of equipment was completely obsolete. I had to oh, learn yeah. everything again. I was, do you know what I was great at? Uh, and the video editing, when you had the toggles and video in, video out, video input, input, output, output. And I'd look like Tom Cruise, a minority report, just sort of like, do, you know, doing the whole, you know, toggling around and everything. I was great at that. And that has no value at all. No one edits <laughs> anything remotely like that anymore. But yeah, I mean, you got in, you did it right. I should have studied like, you know, you know, French painting or something like that and then got out and you know, learn how to edit afterwards because, you know, God, I hated the steam back. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> That's right. This is a therapy. It's a therapy session for me. Sorry. Yeah. So, but uh, I, I'll tell you, uh, I remember you talk about knowing you're finding your market and everything. I remember when you did the awkward comedy show and which I thought turned out great. And um, that was you you created a comedy special that basically was like you curated it. Like you're going to create a, sh a show with the comics that you hand handpicked that would not normally be on a, you know, on a comedy central show. He said, F this, we're going to, we're going to create the right show and the right people. And I, and I, that was an example of you doing something saying, you know, F this, I'm going to do it myself. And I remember it came out fantastic. Uh, it it did. I was very. Here's the thing that I did um, that I think that a lot of filmmakers don't do, which is which was insane to me at the time. But I, what I did was I looked at professional works, and then I didn't stop until I could match those images, <laughs> because a lot of people stop before they match the images of what they see as a professional. So basically, I just reverse engineered what needed to go into a comedy special. And then I figured out ways to cut corners, but still make it look good. Uh, and then I made a special with my friends and made a 
category of that special around this. So like I basically picked my friends first and then decided, oh, it's going to be all black nerdy comedians because that's who we were. And so, right. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it, it was beyond it just, it wasn't really just well. your friend. Wasn't just your friends. I mean, they were all really talented comics who were on Yeah, my talented show, friends. It? I do have talent. Yes. Everybody, yeah, I have talented <laughs> friends. But at the time, nobody was famous. It was me, Hannibal Buress, Eric Andre, Baron Vaughn, Marina Franklin. And I mean, that's, a, the, that's a dynamite lineup. That's dynamite. Now, now lineup. it is. Really funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it is. Uh, at the time, the only one who was marginally famous was Marina Franklin. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. like, at the time, she was the most famous of all of us. And so, we did the special and we had, I mean, it was, it was really a blast. Uh, one of the things that I did, which was two things I did that I think were really great for the special three things. One, I made sure to shoot like documentary uh, interludes. And I feel like at that time it wasn't as huge in specials as it is now. Um, number right. two, I did, uh, I had each person tell a story about themselves straight to camera and we animated those stories which was like little interludes. And then the number three thing I did, which was really fun, was I gave everybody like one of those, like they used to be like cheap handheld HD cameras. I think they were called like Zoom back in the day and not the Zoom the, well, the audio flip, recorders. The flip cams. The, yeah, the, the flip, flip cams. cams. Yeah. Yeah, so I I gave I every, a, yeah. Yeah. I gave everybody one of those and would just like shoot everything backstage, just shoot. And then I took all that footage and just cut it up and made it look like grainy film. And it was great inter interstitial stuff. Um, yeah. So that was why. I mean, that that really was the secret sauce to making that whole thing work. And I remember when that because that aired on Comedy Central, and I remember watching it on Comedy Central. Am I, am I getting my am I, am I getting my yeah. wires crossed? Okay. Yeah, it aired on Comedy, um, Comedy Central. Comedy. The reason that I the reason actually that I made it in the first place was because Comedy Central asked me to submit for a half hour special, and I did, and they were like, "Nope," and I was like, "What?" I was like, "I am definitely ready for half hour special." So then I just made my own special instead, and then they bought it. Yeah, and 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 you made it fifty thousand times more interesting than the special they would have created for you with the different with the interstitials and the animation and the documentary element to it. I think and, so. I mean, who knows? But I <laughs> no, but it, but that's you know that's a a di you know I remember thinking it looked like you had like five different crews working on it when you it, when you when you finally put put it together. I feel like the secret to I feel like the secret is really just looking at the final image because if you can make the final image you can make the final image look professional but you do not have to like you do not have to have like a lot of the things that people have to make things look professional like you don't necessarily need flags you don't necessarily need flags hanging over your actors uh put them in the shade you don't necessarily need to have like the the greatest lighting in the world uh have them facing a window like you you can find ways to create things that look a hundred percent professional without spending the same money because it really is just right. what does the final image look like that's the only thing that people care about right i mean there is i mean and of course that's example of what you were doing is something that would have been impossible bringing it back to bowfinger because of the technology that we had access to shortly after this film came out in 1999 you know that, that you you wouldn't have been able to hand out the flip cams to everyone you would have been able to do some of the things that you wound up doing with the technology that it was at the end of the 20th century uh, i want to i want to bring up one other uh thing because you have 
of anyone I could bring in, you had the unique experience of this is this film. Eddie Murphy is portrayed kind of at the of a movie star who's at the peak of his fame and complete lack of self-awareness. Um, and you acted with Eddie Murphy probably when he was at the closest to his character in this movie when I, and I remember when you went off to, I believe you, it was shot in Montreal, right? Yeah. It was that shot in Montreal. It, you, you went on to shoot. Um, when we talk about Eddie Murphy's best movies, um, the adventures of Pluto Nash rarely gets mentioned alongside coming to America and trading places and Beverly Hills cop, but you indeed went up there to be, I mean, I'm, to to act with you had several scenes with Eddie Murphy in Oh, I was one of the main the villains. Yeah, you <laughs> I was like I was all over that movie. Yeah. And that was yeah, you and Joe Pantoliano were like the main villains of an a very expensive movie. And you're you're the first friend I ever had who ever exploded on screen um in, in an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. You're also the first friend I ever had who's ever been in a spacesuit um floating in zero gravity uh <laughs> and uh whoever said to randy quaid i think it was screw you robot or something screw like that. you robot yeah that movie was yep. filled with wonderful lines <laughs> yeah <laughs> i you were i i i know i i saw it with you when it came out and we were in the theater we were, we were in the theater in it may have been in chelsea was it near Union Square, I think? And yeah, yes. And there was a bunch of us who were like friends with you and would be applauding every time you came on screen or you fired a <laughs> laser gun or or said, screw you, robot. And then spoiler alert for those of you who have been waiting to see Pluto Nash. Um, but uh, your character gets killed and we sort of applauded to say, you know, not that we were happy to see you die. But um, and there was a couple people shushing us that we we're laughing too hard and having too much fun at a comedy. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so funny. Um, uh, any any thoughts or experiences of being on the set for months for the Adventures of Pluto Nash? Uh, yes. First of all, I was very young and they gave me a lot of money and I ran around and did a lot of crazy stuff, which I probably shouldn't have done in Montreal. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, I was in Montreal for six months. My personal party budget was unlimited. I was in an Eddie Murphy movie. It was, I'm surprised that I am alive and I'm so happy that I have didn't hurt anybody dramatically because it was, I was like a loose, I mean, I was, I came from. You were gone forever. You were gone forever. Ever on that oh yeah scene. absolutely and i came from i came from just uh, also you didn't know this but i also didn't understand finances at the time so i just blew uh -huh. all the money just <laughs> 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 i i came off of that i came off of that movie and then i had to go and like get uh get like a regular part-time job because i blew all the <laughs> i've never been in a movie before i didn't know what i was doing <laughs> Man, it was a good time though. <laughs> yeah. So you uh now did, did you interact much with Eddie himself when he was up there? I know you had a I know you had a few scenes with him. You had several scenes with him. 
Oh yeah, I interacted with him. He was really cool to me, uh, especially because he sent his crew out to see me do stand up, and then they reported mm-hmm. back that I was funny. And then so he was really nice to me after that. Although his a good thing you 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 use your A material, you you weren't just effing around. Uh, like oh no, I, I, I definitely when I knew that they were in the room. Of course, I I I, uh, I nailed it. But then also they, what happened? Oh they so so. So I uh, he started giving me advice about stand up, but all of his advice was like from Eddie Murphy's point of view, being famous since he was like seventeen or eighteen years old. So like his <laughs> advice was like, "Hey man, uh, you know what you should do is you should do an HBO special. That's where it really started taking off for me. You should do that next." And I was like, "Really? How? <laughs> <laughs> where do I sign? Where when sign up? You know." <laughs> <laughs> you were having a hard enough time getting a Comedy Central half hour on. So, yeah, you were just, uh, um, but, uh, so look, I'm glad to hear he was, he was cool to you, but like, you know, did you have any at all interaction with him? The nanosecond the film wrapped, or is he, is that just, uh, in the rearview mirror for him? The, when the film wrapped, uh, one thing that I did try to do was I tried to, the, the only time I ever tried to reach out to him and I, and I didn't manage to reach out to him was, when uh charlie murphy passed away because mm-hmm. i had directed a movie that charlie murphy starred in and the movie never came out because the uh executive producer of that movie uh did not know what he was doing and he fumbled the ball but i had all this footage of charlie murphy uh in basically his last film role and right. uh and but i couldn't get it to Eddie murphy sadly mm, well boy i ended that on a on a downer I didn't mean to <laughs> well <end it> on. <laughs> did <laughs> Well, well, look at you are a um, you're an extraordinarily talented and creative and driven guy who is uh, a you know if Bowfinger had a a little more talent and um, was uh, you know and and had your equipment he probably would have been able to create some more. What are you working on now? I mean, you've done so. I mean, every other minute you're doing something new. Like I'm sorry, I'm I look up. So Jesus, he's now doing cart. He's now doing he's doing comic panels now he does you do animation so what are you doing now um i am doing right now what i'm really focused on is uh basically i have a have a podcast that that i had i signed a deal for recently and that podcast is going pretty well um it's called wiki listen it's a podcast where Mm -hmm. i read wikipedia pages and it's very funny and then um, I also just released a book called the Anti-Racism Activity Book, which is like mm-hmm. a Highlights Magazine style activity book that people can get on uh, on Amazon right now. Go to just mm-hmm. go look for Victor Bernardo or Anti-Racism Activity Book on Amazon. But what I'm really focused on right now is I'm going to start. I'm going to do my first solo special, so I'm working on material for that right now. Oh, and cool. yeah, and I am. Uh, I'm working on my first solo special and I am also looking after that to go back into uh narrative features. So I have written an outline for a narrative feature, which I think is pretty good. And actually I know it's good. It's good because <laughs> I've, I've run it by a couple of people and, 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 and I get a good, gets a good reaction. Um, and so that's going to be one of the biggest things that I'm going to be up to in the next few years. And how does that connect to the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Um, I hope uh, uh, a lot. <laughs> it would be amazing. 
yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where that came from. I don't know where that came from. We'll look at. Um, and tell people where they can find. If you're just looking, trying to find you anywhere, and all the amazing stuff you've done, where can people, uh, as I like to say, find your stuff? If you just go to victorvarnado.net, you will find every project that I'm working on. All right, there you go. And uh, well, look at Victor. Uh, uh, I'm I'm proud to call you my friend. I know that it makes you feel uncomfortable when I call you my friend, but I, I it's uh, it's been great bringing your friend over these years. I, when was the last time we physically were in the same room together? Probably it's been I don't years. Know. Certainly, yeah, it's been a... So we don't actually talk about the minute of Bowfinger. Oh, you we talk. Wait, we talked a little bit. We'll talk more about it. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, we, there was a dog, and there was a. Yeah. We didn't I'm even sorry, talk about the dog so, in high heels. We, we got so we got so sidetracked. Let's keep talking about the. Sorry about that. We got so sidetracked, and we said, "Oh man, this is all tangentially talk about." Let's talk about the dog. Let's talk about Betsy the dog here. Let's talk about the the fact that dogs on freaking high heels, and it's awesome. Yeah, I mean that's like one of those things, and that's great. That was great writing by uh, Steve Martin. I mean, that's just like one of yeah. those things that you would like when you see it, it makes perfect sense because of what he was trying to do. But what a mm -hmm. clever way of getting there. Yeah. And just the whole, um, you know, just the whole uh, the tying it back to the pseudo Scientology, you know, keep it together, keep it together when he gets into <laughs> the car, you know. By the way, quick question for you because you you've you've hung around very famous people. Have you ever interacted with anyone who got sort of tied into some sort of Scientology, sort of cult like uh, uh, thought process when you in your uh, work? I mean, Randy Quaid was crazy. <laughs> oh, oh God, that's right! <laughs> holy God, you did a movie with Randy Quaid. Yeah, holy cow! I, holy, that's right. He's the robot. Then you said, "Screw you, robot." Randy Quaid once told me that the best way to take somebody down was to karate kick them in the shins. And then when he was, when, Randy, when he was Randy like Quaid, ladies and gentlemen. between takes, he would, he would be walking around and like practicing karate kicks that were like shin height. It was pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. What a life. Holy cow. The Academy Award nominee, Randy Quaid. Yeah, Randy Quaid loves, loves to take him out of the shins. Yeah, but at some point he went awry. I don't remember exactly what he did, but at some point he did go awry, and then he just became crazy Randy Quaid. That's a shame because he was a really good actor. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it, I, I think he might still be a good actor. You know, that's true. That's it, that's not, not, uh, sanity is not a prerequisite for being a, a fine actor. I don't know if you ever remember the the Ron Howard film, The Paper, with Michael Keaton and Marissa Tomei, and Randy Quaid plays a newspaper columnist in that film who is paranoid and conspiracy theorist and thinks everyone's following him. And the more we learned about Randy Quaid over the years, the more I realized he may not have realized the camera was rolling. He may have just been, <laughs> just, he, may, he may just, that may have just been close, closer to him than we would ever realize. Have you heard of uh, targeted individuals? No. That's people who think that people are following them or spying on them and they think their whole lives are the Truman Show. And it, it was less common before the internet because once they 
once people who have that particular delusion started finding others who were like, yeah, 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 that's right. You know, now it's much bigger. So if you search for targeted in the individuals on YouTube, you will go down a freaking rabbit rabbit hole. Okay. So now two things, two bits of homework you've given me, uh, <laughs> uh, bedtime story, which is the inspiration for the wonderful, uh, dirty rotten scoundrels and, mm-hmm. uh, targeted individuals. You're right. I mean, the, the internet has given us some wonderful things and has also given us so many awful things. All right. Well, now I'm going to wrap. Now I'm going to wrap up. We're, we're, right. we're I've, I've taken up a lot of your time and we could this could turn into one of those epic episodes that is like uh, needs an intermission. But uh, Victor, you've already you've already plugged your stuff. So I'm not going to have you go do that again. This was a real pleasure. I knew we were just talking about all sorts of things that were either directly related or tangentially related <laughs> to uh, to the movie. Um and I had a feeling when I contacted you that it'd be like, I think I know the right person for this. Uh, by the way, um, I want everyone who wants to follow the Bowfinger Minute podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Play, or at the main site, which is bowfingerminute.com. And if you have time, like, subscribe, review the show, tell your friends all about it. And on social media, Check out Welcome to Mindhead, the Bowfinger Minute Listener Center on Facebook and on Twitter at Bowfinger Minute. And there have been a lot of the Movies by Minute podcasts. Uh, I did three or four episodes of the Tron podcast. I should forward you those episodes, Victor, because you and I were in very early on how awesome Tron is. In fact, I think that was one of the reasons we became friends is one of us mentioned Tron and both of our eyes lit up and said, you love Tron? I love Tron. And we wound up talking it's about It's the Tron best. Judah Freelander, also a big fan of Tron. Yeah. And in the episode that I did for Tron Minute, I to- I had the, the, uh, um, the communication between Tron and Alan, it confirmed Alan through the IO tower. And I explained how the parallels between that and uh, Moses on Mount Sinai, getting the, <laughs> the Ten Commandments and that the the disc coming back is the equivalent of getting the tablets back from God. Uh, and I and I said it with a straight face because I mean, I mean, it. it's a, one of the most profound movies ever made about religion is Tron. And I say that with no humor or irony. It was great. And one of my favorite things about Tron though is this is not this is not this is not about being profound. It's the silly lines that some of the extras have. Like when <laughs> um when Alan is when Alan is going uh upstairs to meet uh what's the what's the what's the Dillinger. 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 He's going upstairs to meet Dillinger. As he gets upstairs, one of the extras comes by and goes, Alan, do you mind if I eat your popcorn? <laughs> do you remember this? Yeah, and that actor <laughs> Is the actor who plays uh, David the um, what's the day when David Warner in the Tron world is uh, Sark, ah. and he has a lieutenant, and that actor is the same actor who asked for the popcorn. That's really so. Funny. Everyone ex- everyone exists in both worlds. There, that's great. And for yeah, more that's... for more stuff like that, go to the Tron minute. <laughs> if we, if you and I start talking about Tron, we'll be on for an hour. People's people's phones are going to be catching on fire here. Um, <laughs> I'm, let me just wrap this up quickly. Um, and by the way, uh, you can follow me uh, if you're still on Twitter. I'm at Sully Baseball. There, I'm at Sully Baseball Podcast on 
Instagram, you could follow Locked On MLB, which is my current baseball podcast for the Locked On Podcast Network. My old show, Sully Baseball, still exists out there, as does the Bull Durham Minute Podcast, where I break down Bull Durham a minute at a time. Talking about (laughs) many, many things, and every once in a while, the movie Bowfinger with the brilliant Victor Varnado. This has been Bowfinger Minute. I've been your guest host for this week, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. And in the meantime, keep it together. Keep it together. Keep it together. Keep it together, children. I hope that we'll see you again. Cause there's always one more